Saints, we thank the Lord for the chance to continue on, to continue on this morning. Well, let us begin with uh, a word about what we've seen thus far. Praise the Lord that in his recovery, his speaking in these days renders to us a marvelous panoramic view. In this conference to, to encapsulate this view, we've seen the books of Colossians and Philippians. We've seen in Colossians that the, the, the Himalayan revelation, the unexceeded, exceedingly unexceeded height of revelation in the entire Bible in Colossians shows that Christ is to be everything to us. He's the centrality and universality of God's economy in Revelation, and he is to be experienced by us as such, to be everything to us. And in the Revelation contained in Colossians, he is all-inclusive by being all-extensive, indicating that in our experience, the horizons of what Christ touches, what he enters into, and what he's involved with mutually with us extends, 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 becomes larger until our entire universe is involved with him. He, in verse 12 of chapter 1, is our portion, the lot of our inheritance, our good land in which we can have all of the splendid, intended, prepared experiences 1 Corinthians 2.9, all the things that he has prepared for those who love him in a universe of splendorous delight and enjoyment of him. Colossians begins this way, and the exceedingly high revelation that we, we covered and reviewed shows that step by step, both in terms of revelation in this book and in our experience, this extending, extending of our appreciated and annexed experience of Christ enlarges to the point that he and we, we and he become the one new man. As the organism of the triune God, a corporate entity living and enjoying one another together, in which Christ is all and in all. And in this one new man, he has everything we have everything, nothing is lacking, and the new man becomes the bride for his eternal satisfaction, and the church enters into her eternal status as the wife of the Lamb. Praise the Lord. So, we give ourselves to experience this. As we experience this and pursue that experience, we find ourselves transitioning from the book of Colossians to the book of Philippians. <clears throat> and our pursuit of these very experiences, which as they reach their extremity, are the utmost experience, the utmost subjective experience of Christ, renders, renders, renders us ready to reach the goal for the prize for which we were laid hold of, and to which we're, we are being called upward. And as you merge these two books together, you see that they both contain a secret laid in the book, 
in chapter four of Colossians, the secret for our expanding experience of Christ is that we would persevere in prayer. And in Philippians, the secret of our advancing onto the utmost experience of Christ is that everything would be brought into a movement, um, positioning, an orientation of our being such that we're touching him, engaging him, conversing with him in everything. We put these two books together and they render, render us uh, identification with Luke 21, 36, where now as those who pray perseveringly, unceasingly, beseeching by watching it every time, we prevail through this particular kind of prayer to escape the things which are to come and to stand before the Son of Man in rapture, attaining thus to a secret appearing the beginning, the beginning of the more than 1,000 year prize that waits us of the utmost experience of Christ. All this is accessed by us by realizing that he has prepared for us himself in his reality for our enjoyment as our way. Now we just need to contact him, contact him contact him. And we do this through this kind of positioning of ourself, moving, uh, inclining, uh, reaching to touch him. As we do this, this is what we term unceasing prayer. Now, if I could just explain a bit about the title. Um, the title says, Being Transported. Now, you might have wondered what being transported refers to here in this usage. In some of our hymns, transport means rapturous carriage, where the way we carry ourselves is different now. And it's no longer that we're under control, but it's that we're almost being whisked away. As the seeking one was in Song, Song of Songs, chapter 6, before I was aware, I was carried away. Um, this is what happens when we're involved in this kind of pursuit and enjoyment of the Lord as seen in Colossians and in Philippians. But this particular message is to show us that this rapturous carriage of ours onto his imminent return by unceasing prayer is something that is worked out for us. It's something absolutely feasible, practical, and delivered to us, if you will. So, far from thinking this is something abstract that we can't lay hold of. This morning's message, message is to tell us we can do this because the reality that is in Jesus will be our 
rapturous conveyance, a rapturous way to do this. And all we have to do is render ourselves ready to be attracted by him more. So I, I'd like to illustrate this by picture a um, virtuous husband. Now, in um, human life, it's hard to imagine such a husband. But theoretically speaking, a virtuous husband would be one who, let's say, prepares everything for the object of his affection, his intended bride. He, he prepares everything. And he knows what he's prepared. He knows it's all worked out. He knows that he's going to open the door and just render a tour through what he's prepared. But she doesn't know. She doesn't know. But what does she have to do? Nothing but be attracted, be willing, be responsive. And so what the Lord does as our reality, the reality that is in Jesus, he extends his hand to take ours and bring us into what he has prepared. Now, because it's new, let's say the bride, new and beyond her comprehension, let's say the bride is ambivalent. What does the virtuous husband do? Well, of course, a virtuous husband won't insist on anything. And he can just wait until the object of his affection, his bride, is ready and is no longer ambivalent and is willing to be guided and conducted and brought into everything that is prepared. So what we're seeing this weekend regarding unceasing prayer, bringing us to the extensive experience of Christ, Christ as, as, as our goal and as our prize, through unceasing prayer, everything has been worked out. This unceasing prayer is not ardent spiritual exercise mainly. It's not being a spiritual overcomer, a spiritual Olympian. No, it's being willing, willing to have the most virtuous husband and to be attracted and to let him take us by the hand and bring us into everything that he has prepared. As we do that, he becomes our transport, a rapturous conveyance into everything that's prepared. And we become those who love him. According to Colossians, 1 Corinthians 2, 9, and enter into the unending passage through what he's prepared. Well, let's prove through the following Roman numerals that we are able to pray unceasingly onto the experience of Christ in Colossians and Philippians because of the reality that is in Jesus. Roman number one says, while the natural concept may question the feasibility and practicality of unceasing prayer, 
the scriptural divine concept not only affirms its feasibility and practicality, but also indicates its, necessi its necessity. It's, it's prepared and it is the way, it is the way. So in the verses that we have here, which many of which we've touched already, 1 Thessalonians 5.17 says, unceasingly pray, unceasingly pray. Colossians 4.2 tells us, tells us that we should persevere onto such prayer. Ephesians 6.18 says that we should pray at every, at every time. 1 Corinthians 1.2 and 1 Timothy 2.8 tell us that we should pray in every place. So when we put these together, we see that this charge, this imperative, this New Testament imperative that we pray unceasingly is to pervade in our experience time and space. It's to, it's to, it's to be all, all inclusive. The fact that it's to be all inclusive indicates that any believer can do it. Any believer can do it. So there's no exception. We can, we can do it. You don't have to be strong. All you have to do is not be ambivalent. And then you can have this life of praying unceasingly, persevering onto such prayer by praying in every place, every time, in every way. <laughs> So the final verse here is Isaiah 55, 8, which says, his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. So the conveyance, the transport of unceasing prayer into what we, what's been prepared for us brings us into what we could not imagine in a way that exceeds our thought and our consideration. Who would think that we could pray unceasingly? This is the divine thought revealed in the New Testament. Now, <clears throat> let's go on and see how he makes this possible as our virtuous husband and takes full responsibility for it. And all we have to do is put our hand into his. Roman numeral two says, in ourselves... We are not able to persevere in prayer. Well, wait a minute. <laughs> Didn't we just say we're to persevere on unceasing prayer? Well, let's see what happens here. In ourselves, we're not able to persevere in prayer. The Lord himself is our way. The solid foundation assuring that with him, we can live a life of unceasing prayer. Okay, let's take a look at these verses. So we have 1 Thessalonians 5, 17, again, unceasingly pray. And then we have verse 24, which goes on to say, faithful is he who calls us in the previous verse and who also will do it. So apparently we're praying unceasingly. Actually, he's the one who makes this possible and will carry it out for us. 
Then the next series of verses, I believe, let's see, maybe, uh, maybe uh, Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 dropped out here. But so <clears throat> John 14, 6 uh, indicates that the Lord is our way by being our life and our reality. He's our way. He's our way. Now, the way this connects to Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, Hebrews 12, 1 says that we should put off every encumbrance, including as we saw in the in the uh, first two messages, all the trappings and constrictions of our culture, inherited or self-made. We are to put these things off and we are to run the race, which is before us. And the race here indicates there's a stretch ahead. But our brother in elaborating on this in Hebrews 12, one and two says, that race, although actually the race course is long, actually becomes something very easy. Because in that race, at the point at which you are on the race track, all you have to do is look away onto Jesus. And the, the track you're on becomes him as your way. You look upon, you look unto him away from everything else. Hebrews 12, 2a. And the, and the, the race, Hebrews 12, 1, that we have to run becomes the way, which is he himself. As we look to him, he becomes the way. So yes, we shouldn't be ambivalent. We have to be willing to look to him. When he, we do, he becomes our way and we're running the race. And the race is not long. It's ultra short and ultra present. All we have to do is look away to him. And that takes care of the present segment of the race and assures that we will victoriously finish the course. Now, then we have Exodus 17, 11, and 12. Now, these are wonderful verses. And you'll remember that this is in the, in the passage of Israel out of Egypt on their way to the good land. And they have the first um, attack, the first opposition. And this opposition is from Amalek. And as you know, Amalek signifies the flesh including the good aspect of culture, attacking and keeping them from progressing toward the good land of the experience of the all-inclusive Christ. But Amalek, culture is going to be subdued and put off. So Moses ascends the mountain, right? Looks down on the battle. Israel led by Joshua and, and, uh, and Amalek fighting. So what does he do? He prays. He prays. And his prayer is signified by the raising of his hands. And when he raises his hands, Israel prevails and Amalek is defeated. But when his hands tire and, and uh, lapse down, then Amalek prevails. Now, this is a lovely picture in typology of Christ as the head and Christ as the body. 
Moses there signifies Christ as the head, praying in the heavens. And as he prays, as he prays, when Joshua, the Christ who indwells us, is empowered to defeat the flesh, Amalek, in our experience. But now, the picture of Christ as the head, the praying one in the heavens, takes on the aspect of Christ, the body. Because it's as the body and not as the head that the praying hands get heavy and coarse down. So they're propped up. They're propped up by Judah and, no, sorry, by Aaron and by her. Aaron, indicating the priest line, Christ as our heavenly priest, and her as the, king, as the kingly line of the tribe of Judah, uh, Christ, our ascended, our ascended king, holds up the praying hands of the body, and Hamlech is defeated. Meanwhile, Moses, in this aspect of Christ as the body, has to pray all day long, and as the body, he tires, and so a a stone is brought to him in these verses. And he sits on the stone with his supported, with his hands up, and is able to pray until Amalek is fully defeated and the day is over. Well, what does this mean? What is the stone? The stone is is the body's realization that they cannot have this prayer on their own. That he is the sustaining one, the one who enables them to pray, the one who enables them to be victorious. So he holds up the praying arms, he sustains the praying being, and he makes a way for Amalek, the flesh, to be defeated. This shows that for unceasing prayer, he's our transport. He's our rapturous conveyance. He's the outworking of it. He's the reality of it. So we just need to be attracted to him. Now, as we go on to the the final verses, Song of Songs uh, 8, 5, and 14, who is this who comes up? from the wilderness of the world. It is her leaning on her beloved. And she leans on her beloved. And that's all she does as she's carried forth to verse 14, where she says, make haste, my beloved. Be as a gazelle. As a young heart. upon the mountains of spices. So life messages, page 189 says, Christ is our way to pray. Because we are one with him, we walk in him, we find ourselves praying. So this statement is elaborated by the rest of the outline. Okay, so Roman numeral three. Our ability to pursue unceasing prayer 
onto our readiness for the inception of the Lord's parousia, as we've seen in the first two messages. We might say a little bit more about that if you didn't get to hear the first two messages, but we elaborated on that. What is the inception of the Lord's ultimate parousia? Well, that is our prize. That is our prize. Is guaranteed by the pneumatic reality that is in Jesus. So here in the following Roman numerals, we'll see the three factors of the practicality and feasibility of, of unceasing prayer. As we saw in Roman numeral two, we'll see that Christ is our way. He is our way first as the pneumatic one who already lived the life of unceasing prayer and now indwells. And as he indwells us, he is teaching us and we're learning from him that reality that was in Jesus. That's Roman numeral three. Roman numeral four is we're attracted to this one. We're attracted to him. We love him so much we can't stay away. We've slipped our hand into his. He's introducing us and taking us into what he's prepared. And all we have to do is just not let go. And then the next the next Roman numeral is that he has become as this pneumatic reality in Jesus. A universe, a sphere, a territory, a realm in which we can live. And this realm is the God man, divine and human, the man of prayer. We enter into him and it's spontaneous as we live in him as our realm, that we pray unceasingly in our communion with him. So that's what we have in the next three Roman numerals. <clears throat> that's what we have in the next three Roman numerals. Hope my voice isn't too soft. Okay. So let's look at these verses. Incredible. Okay. Ephesians 4, 20 and 21. We have these verses, but you did not so learn Christ. If you have heard him and have been taught in him as the reality is in Jesus. What is this reality? This reality is the actual condition of the life that was lived by the Lord in the four gospels in which he cleaved to the father. He directed his being to the father. He was ever moving to the father as the man of prayer. And as, as the one who prayed in this manner, as we'll see, as we'll see in the, in the sub points, he fulfilled Psalm 1094, which says that in return for my love, they have become my adversaries. In return for my love, they have become my adversaries, but I prepared for them and have become a reality for them that is all prayer. He says, he says, but I am, I, but I am all prayer. Then Luke 9, 18 and 20 to 29. Okay, wonderful passage. Now remember that Luke is the gospel on the Lord as a normal, man. 
And Luke is the gospel on the Jubilee in which we enjoy him. How do we enjoy him? We enjoy, enjoy him as revealed in the book of Luke by attaining to his living as a man of prayer, as a man of prayer. The unique passages on prayer in the four gospels that don't occur in the others in the other synoptic gospels are only in Luke. Reference, Luke chapter 11, chapter 18, chapter 19. Key areas, key passages in Luke show us that the revelation of God in Christ as a normal man is that he was a man praying without ceasing. Wonderful. But anyway, uh, <clears throat> let's see this now in Luke chapter 9. Okay, Luke 9.18 says, And he was alone, pray he was praying alone, and the disciples were with him. And he questioned them, saying, Who do the crowds say that I am? So we know this is an important juncture. This is a sister portion to Matthew chapter 16. Now, did you catch what this verse said? Did you catch it? Let me read it to you again. As he was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and he questioned them, saying, Who do the crowds say that I am? Do you see the praying God man here? Do you see him? He was praying alone, and the disciples were with him. Well, was he alone, or were the disciples with him? Yes. The disciples were with him, but he was praying alone. He was with the disciples, moving with them, talking with them, considering regarding them. But he was alone with the Father, praying. He was in two dimensions. He was with the Father. Meanwhile, he was with, he was with the disciples. He was alone praying. And then as he was alone praying, then he broke forth and said, who do they say that I am? Highlight in your New Testament, Luke 9, 18, as a verse on the praying God-man. So as you, you know the story, you know the story that... Uh, <clears throat> Peter receives the revelation that Christ is the son of the living God. And he tells, he tells them, he tells them there that very soon, very soon the kingdom will be manifested. That they will see the kingdom manifested. Then in Luke's version of this, we go on to verse 28 to summarize. It says, and eight days after these words, in verse 18, he took with him Peter, James, and John, and went up into the mountain to pray. Note that Luke is the unique place, I believe, that says that as he took them to the Mount of Transfiguration, he was taking them there to the Mount of Transfiguration to pray. And then as he prayed, he was transfigured. 
modeling to them that the key to the transfiguration that would involve theirs, the rapture of the overcoming believers, the experience of Philippians 3.21, the transfiguration of their bodies, would happen while, as, and through their prayer. Marvelous. Marvelous. So it says, as he prayed, he appeared, his, the appearance of his face became different, and his garments became dazzling white as he prayed. This, in the gospel, on prayer, on the man of prayer, is to show the effect of our ongoing, unceasing prayer onto, onto his ultimate parousia, onto the transfiguration of our bodies and our rapture to the heavens. <laughs> it's wonderful, huh? Subpoint A. So he, the one <clears throat> who's described in Ephesians 4:20 as the reality and 21 as the reality being in Jesus, he, the man of prayer, the one who is all prayer, the praying God man, he, subpoint A, as the man of prayer, the Lord Jesus was one who is always one with God. So John, uh, John 10.30 says, I and the Father are one. Then regarding this, in Brotherly's exposition on page 89 of the book, The God and Man Living, he says, he told us that he was never alone and that the Father was with him as always as the man of prayer and through his prayer. B, as a man of prayer, the Lord Jesus was a man who lived in the presence of God without ceasing. Through this experience, he incorporated this experience into the history of the earthly ministry of the praying God-man, and then through death and resurrection brought this as reality into our experience as the pneumatic reality of Jesus, the praying God-man in our spirit. There, he continues to be a man living in the presence of God without ceasing, intending, to bring us, attract us to him, to join him in that unceasing prayer. So again, on page 89, our brother says, every moment, every moment he saw his father's face. We may seek Christ, yet not live in his presence so closely and continuously without seeking. So, he's drawing us, bringing us into that very, very frame. See, as a man of prayer, the Lord Jesus trusted in God and not in himself under any and every kind of persecution and suffering. And so, unceasing prayer is seen here in 1 Peter 
2.23, who being reviled, okay, the Lord was being reviled, opposed, even blasphemed. He did not revile in return. Suffering did not threaten, but kept committing all to him who judges right, righteously. So in these situations, his unceasing prayer remained unbroken. The communion continued, and he committed these things to the Father. As the model for what he, as the reality that's now in Jesus, as the indwelling God-man, enables us to do when we are reviled, when we are opposed, when we are blasphemed, we can commit these things to the righteous one who did so already and now lives within us. Point D says, as a man of prayer, the Lord Jesus was a man in whom Satan, the ruler of the world, had nothing. No ground, no chance, no hope, no possibility in anything. Satan had no ground in him because his submit, submission to the Father cut off Satan. What a beautiful picture. What a man. What a pattern. What a model. The God-man who lived this way, communing with the Father in an uninterrupted, continuous stream in such a way that Satan could not intervene, could not intrude, could not cause imperfection. No ground, no chance, no hope, no possibility. Remember now, what we do here is not say, my, how we worship you, Lord. You lived such a life. We pray not only that, but you lived such a life so that as the spirit of reality, you would become our indwelling reality and lead us into all reality to live this same way and be a person in whom through unceasing communion with you now, in, in us, Satan has no place, no way, no chance, no opportunity. Remember, he's the one who did this. He's the one who will do it again through us, in us, by our being attracted to him and by our touching him through unceasing prayer. Then point E. Point E is a precious, precious point. Christ's prayers prayed in his earthly ministry were divine facts in his mysterious, that is mystical and divine, human life. And here we have Matthew 4.2, which says, And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, afterward he became hungry. As you recall from the book, The God-Man Living, it's pointed out that this verse is full of implications related to the praying God-Man. He did not fast and would not fast 
in a way that exceeded his prayer. Rather, he didn't fast continuously, but fasted on occasion. Here he fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, implying that he, as the God-man, defacing the enemy, defeating the enemy and effacing his plan and attack, prayed continuously as a man for 40 days and 40 nights. So this shows the life of, of, of the praying God-man. And every time he prayed in this continuous prayer that was through not just, not just his three and a half years of ministering, but through his entire, entire human life, he lived this way. He was all prayer. Everything that he did became a fact. Now consider, if his prayers and what he did as he prayed became facts, that indicates that there is a possibility that what he did could be non-factual. Through his prayer, what he did became factual. Had he not prayed, those things would have become, could have been not factual in the same way. Here, factual refers to his abiding reality. He was reality, and he was communing with the Father through his unceasing prayer. When he did, when he did this, his contact with the Father in his prayer became a fact, became an item of his an item of his reality, which later he would teach to us, which later we would listen and hear from him, learn from him, be taught from him regarding the prayer that he made in that kind of juncture, in that kind of way. Now, those prayers that he made, because they were facts, they became non temporal merely, not only temporal, they became eternal, eternal. This means that when we, through our prayer, contact him and augment the frequency of our doing so and persevere unto unceasing prayer, what we do by touching him as we do it he being the indwelling reality and the spirit of reality that's guiding us into reality, the experience we have as we pray becomes factual, indicating that that experience, apart from our prayer-filled transport to contact him, could have been non-factual. So our experiences, which are not involved with our prayer, although tangible, present, and real to us, are not factual in the way that our experiences are. When we touch him as the indwelling reality, 
touch the reality of prayer that is in Jesus. And as so, our prayer and what we are doing at the time of that prayer becomes factual and becomes something that has another kind of nature, a nature that doesn't fade, that doesn't erode, that isn't forgotten. And that instance, that experience, that experience mingled with prayer is brought into the eternal realm and becomes factual in a way that it would not have been had it been merely a temporal experience of ours. So how do we bring things, experiences of ours in certainty into eternal reality? We contact him as the reality within us as the praying God-man in the midst of our daily living, and those experiences become eternal facts. This should be quite an incentive for us. Now, here we come now into the more compelling things. Okay, It's wonderful that the feasibility, the practicality of unceasing prayer is a pneumatic reality in our spirit and we can learn that reality because that reality is in Jesus as the indwelling one in our spirit so we can do this we can do this as we saw last night we can do this but we still might think well I'm beset with these ambivalence related problems I've got my involvements and yes, this culture that we talked about. Well, the next two Roman numerals are to overrule all that ambivalence and let him be the way, the transport onto his imminent coming. So <clears throat> Roman numeral four says, our ability to pursue unceasing prayer onto our readiness for the inception of the Lord's ultimate parousia is reinforced after the previous Roman numeral, it's reinforced by this, by our yearning for him, by our yearning for him in response to his desire to live with us intimately and affectionately. So here we see the virtuous husband, he wants He's filled with desire to live with us intimately and affectionately. When we register this, his intent, his feeling regarding us adorns the all attractiveness of his divinized humanity, of his magnetic being and becomes able to attract us, regardless of how cold, regardless of how far, regardless of how um, hardened we are. His attraction breaks through us, breaks through. When we realize what he wants to have with us, what he's prepared for us, has governed everything. 
as it's developed through the ages. It's all been there, prepared, waiting for us. This causes us to yearn for him. So, <clears throat> God's economy is not just a spiritual construct, a, a spiritual principle. It's a relationship truth in which everything is fragrant, everything is aromatic, everything draws and has to entice our being. So in the life study of Job, Brother Lee says, here's a new definition of faith. Faith is within his inherent attraction. What is our faith? Our faith is ours as a result of being attracted to him. As we were attracted, we were drawn to him. And as we were drawn to him, and we opened him, inquiring. He infused himself into us to be indwelling faith and love. Faith first in our union with him. Love in the sense within that union. Causing us then to love him and to be drawn to him. To be drawn to him. So this has all been prepared. It's all been done. And so now all we have to do is cultivate, recognize and cultivate this love for him and have our being ever turned to him, ever drawn by him, ever moving closer to him. So now we'll read these wonderful subpoints. A. Loving the Lord is the stone. Back to Roman number two is the stone. He is the stone, the solid foundation for our capacity to pray. So our loving, our loving him enables us to pray, and our loving him is the content of our prayer. Our loving him is the transport of our prayer, and it transports us to him for his present parousia, and transports us to his upcoming ultimate parousia. We just love him. Perfecting training, pages 165 and 257. The basic foundation for us to pray is that we love him. We love the Lord. We just love him. Therefore, we seek him. We like to contact him. We like to pray to him. We like to call upon him. The basic stone is the loving of the Lord. We must have a foundation of loving the Lord. And this becomes the foundation of our persevering and unceasing prayer. Our response to him when we realize he's prepared everything. 1 Corinthians 2.9, and now just wants to take our hand and allow us to enter in 
this dissipates our ambivalence and we enter into all that he's prepared. Secondly, prayer means just to contact the Lord and to keep ourselves in a close and intimate contact with him. This is Perfecting Training, page 259, 257, sorry. Prayer means to contact the Lord and to keep yourself in a very close and intimate contact with him. So, in response to his attraction, we're filled with faith. The faith brings us love. We just love him. And so we gravitate back to him. And this drawing, this attraction is the combustible, is the, is the fuel, is the substrate. What makes possible our unceasing prayer. Point B says, the Lord intends that we no longer. The Lord intends that we not live a solitary life. Perfecting training, position between the two previous references, pages 186 to 187. Brother Lee says, don't forget that you should never be single. You're destined, you're not destined to a single life. You are now living a marriage life. And your husband is Christ. We all have him as our husband. Now we must live with our husband. Don't go anywhere without him. Don't do anything without him. Don't say anything without him. All the time, you have to do things with him. This is to pray unceasingly. Point C. Our love for him <clears throat> draws us to live in the realm of the spirit of prayer. This spirit of prayer must be the realm in which we live. Bring this atmosphere into your daily life. Pray without ceasing. Pray daily, Lord, I love you. Attract me that I may love you more. Rekindle my love for you this very day. Every day I want my love for you to be fresh and sweet. Come and make your home in my heart. You are the one I desire. Then he goes on. Suppose someone, suppose you expressed your love to someone of your acquaintance and your longing that that one come and live with you how deeply moved that person would be. In other words, you tell someone dear to you, oh, I want you to come and be with me. 
I want you to partake of everything that I have. I want to share a life together with you. How touched that person would be, he says. This describes the normal response to the Lord's yearning to desire to live with us. We respond and we say, yes, I want that too. And that is unceasing prayer. So before we go on to Roman number five, let's go back for a second to Roman number three and point out that as we add this feeling of being attracted to him, loving him, loving him, to positioning us in a realm where he is everything to us, causing unceasing prayer to be spontaneous. He causes us to be the kind of seeker that will close this age. So, back to the God-man living. Brother Lee said that first the Lord, as the man of prayer, who now is the man of prayer as the reality is in Jesus in us praying, was in his prayer, not merely a common man praying prayers to God, nor merely a pious, devoted man, a so-called godly man, praying to God in a religious way, nor only, we're ascending here, nor only a God-seeking man praying to God for the divine attainments and what he has accomplished and obtained, and not merely a Christ-seeker praying desperately to gain Christ in his excellency, but we, in the Lord's recovery, through his present speaking and the present panoramic revelation, become a man in the flesh, praying to the mysterious God in the divine and mystical realm. So we become such persons ready to enter in to Roman numeral five. Our ability to pursue unceasing prayer onto our readiness for the inception of the Lord's ultimate parousia is strengthened by our aspiration to live with him in the divine and mystical realm of the consummated spirit which he is and has become. We live in him as the divine and mystical realm of the consummated spirit, which he is and has become as a realm of reality. Subpoint A, I'm burdened to tell you that you need to enter into a realm, a sphere, 
a kingdom which is much higher than the realm you are in now. The divine and mystical realm with the reference. B, Lord, we come to you to learn how you, the triune God, are a realm, a realm of reality. That reality is God in Christ as the man of prayer, having, having become the spirit to become the one who could enter into us, to be the praying God-man, now becoming a realm of reality in which we can live. How you, the triune God, are a realm, and to see that you want us to enter into this realm, that is to enter into you. C. Hope you'll enjoy C, D, and E. C. Unceasing prayer brings us into and sustains us in the divine and mystical realm of the consummated spirit through our mingled spirit. And as a highlight of the book of Luke and the life study of Luke, we have the marvelous utterances in the exposition on Luke chapter 11. Luke chapter 11, we have the references here, here for you, and then we have a summary statement. You'll remember that this is a parable where the Lord taught. When asked, teach us to pray, he taught, I'll teach you how to pray. I want to teach you how to pray unceasing prayer, continuous prayer, unrelenting prayer. So he's got a friend. The person in the parable and the story has got a friend. And he goes to the friend and knocks on the door and needs food to feed those who've come to be with him. And the friend whom he has gone to ask help from indicates that he can't help because he's gone to retire. He's in bed with the children. And, uh, but we're instructed in the prayer to be the friend who in intimacy knows that actually, actually, the one upon whose door we're knocking wants us to keep knocking, keep knocking, keep knocking. So he does. He keeps knocking. And this is the parable, continuous prayer. Eventually, eventually, the three loaves, the complete portion that is asked for is given. And so the Lord explains. So also you pray in this way. And he said, if you knock, if this one, when asked for bread, gave bread, how about your heavenly father? Would he give you a stone? Or would your human father, if you ask for bread, give you a stone? If you ask for a fish, would he give you a snake? If you ask for an egg, would he give you a scorpion? No, no human father would do this. How much more would the heavenly father, your heavenly father, if you continue to knock, give you bread, give you fish, give you egg? 
Then he says, Brother Lee says, that this, that the, that the egg indicates the avian, avian life and indicates the heavenly realm, indicates the air. The fish indicates the aquatic life and indicates the sea. The bread indicates wheat, indicates the land. The land plus the sea plus the air equals the universe. In other words, when you knock and you don't give up, God gives you himself as the universe, which you have prayed your way into, in which, in which you live, in which he is everything, and your prayer makes everything real, and you live in a realm of reality that connects directly to eternity. This is the virtue of unceasing prayer. So, <clears throat> I believe you have on your outline this statement. If not, let me read it to you. Our brother says, seek to pray in such a way that you are brought into God, implying God as a realm. The prayer that brings us into God is the right kind of prayer. We know from our experience with the Lord that often we have prayed, we, that often we have prayed properly and we have prayed ourselves into God. As we remain in him, we receive his riches, the riches that are embodied by the spirit as this realm, as the loaves, the fish, and the egg. <laughs> Incredible. Uh, point D. Unceasing prayer also enables us to position and sustain our living in the divine and mystical realm of the consummated spirit. So here from Brother Nee's Collected Works, volume 38, page 456, he says, brothers and sisters, if we come to God and remain calm before him, giving up our thoughts to enter into his thoughts, remember Isaiah 55, we will see the great need for prayer. We will see that God is waiting for us to pray about so many things. And we will see that everything around us can become a subject of our prayer. Note this. In fact, the whole earth can become the subject of our prayer referring to the God-man living in which, living within the realm of the pneumatic Christ and the consummated spirit. We take him as our reality in all of the specific occasions and incidents of our daily living and the entire world becomes the subject of our prayer as we live in this realm. Point E, through unceasing prayer, God walks in us 
and we have our activities in him. Having our activities in him refers, refers to our entering into him, to live in him as this realm of reality, enabling him then to be the indwelling reality in us and carry out and, and, and he walk within us. This is according to the principle of John 15, 4a, abide in me as this realm, and I will abide in you and walk in you. <clears throat> While we pray, on the one hand, it is God passing through our being. And on the other hand, it is also we, our being, passing through God as this realm of reality. On the one hand, it is God passing through the words of our prayer, while on the other hand, it is the words of our prayer passing through God as this realm. Hence, at such times of prayer, we can sense a very strong flavor of God's presence. Let me say this simple word again. God is walking in us as well as our having our, our activities in him as we pray unceasingly and experience him as a realm. The realm, the realm of the praying God-man, the realm of the pneumatic praying one, the, re the realm of the consummated spirit in our spirit. So, um, now, in conclusion, <clears throat> we, we have seen today that we don't have to question whether we can pray unceasingly, whether this is practical or feasible for us. The fact that the New Testament tells us that all of us as believers are to unceasingly pray, to pray in every place, to pray at every time indicates that all of us can do it. And the fact that all of us can do it indicates, indicates that it is something that does not depend upon our capacity, but it's something that is given to us by him. So he is our way. He is our reality. He is, he is our transport to make this work. He as the God-man lived a life of unceasing prayer with the Father, went to the cross, died and resurrected to become in resurrection, the life-giving spirit as the realm of reality and regenerated us to bring our spirits into that realm of reality. Now he awaits our unceasing prayer to bring the rest of our inner being into that same realm so that our physical bodies are ready to be transfigured and enter into that realm as well. For this, for this, he's made known to us that all he desires is that we interplay, intercourse, co-inhere, be with him continuously, and be willing to be drawn and attracted by him. When we see this, we just love him and our being gravitates toward him. And unceasing prayer becomes not 
an obligation or not a task, but becomes something that spontaneously is a description of who and where we are. And as we touch him and as we contact him, we enter into a realm that he is, a realm of his pneumatic praying being in which everything in there, he is the reality of, but the reality of that reality was installed by his living on earth in prayer. And all those things are prayer related. We, through those things, are reminded and brought into unceasing prayer in him and with him. And this makes us ready for his secret appearing as we enjoy his parousia in an ongoing way in this marvelous realm of reality where we <clears throat> live with him through unceasing prayer. So in conclusion, Roman numeral six, we can thus boldly pursue readiness to participate in the release of the Lord's ultimate parousia by cultivating a life of unceasing prayer. Back to Luke 21, 36. Watch at every time, beseeching that you prevail to escape the things which are to come and to stand before the Son of Man, referring to the rapture. Companion verse, Revelation 3, 10 and 11, which say, <clears throat> which say, as a reward to the overcomers, you will, you will, you will, you will <clears throat> escape the trial that is to come upon the inhabited earth, verse 10, and then verse 11, behold, I come quickly. So before us, in Revelation 3, 10, and 11, we have this choice. We can remain ambivalent, and the consummation of the age will be three and a half years of great tribulation. We can give ourselves to unceasing prayer for his imminent return, and he says, behold, I come quickly. This is my reward for you. And so, through unceasing prayer, we approach and are ready to touch and release the Lord's ultimate parousia. Those who are such, when there are enough of us again, we'll be raptured to stand before the Son of Man, heavenly Mount Zion, and begin the subsequent events that we went through last night. This is worth our boldness with him as our transport and our way. A, through the ultra-present, through the ultra-present enjoyment of our indwelling man of prayer, our pneumatic bridegroom, we enjoy our pneumatic bridegroom in an ultra-present way by sequential short prayers that become ever more frequent, ever more directed, ever more intent, ever more focused until they become unceasing. So, First <clears throat> Peter 2.21, he's the one who prayed this way. Now we follow in his steps. John 3.29 and 30, 
He is the bridegroom. Through our unceasing prayer, he increases and we decrease. Point B, through our desire to live not only with him, to our, through our desire to, to live not only with him in his all-inclusivity, but also in him, back to Colossians 1.12, but also in him, in his all-extensiveness, as our pneumatic good land. So thank you, saints. And we thank the Lord for the recent speaking in his recovery, through which in the books of Colossians and Philippians, we can see that culture and everything else is displaced. Our experience of Christ becomes all extensive and all inclusive. And he becomes through unceasing prayer and that he himself is the way, the reality for us to have that life of unceasing prayer. And so now we can look forward to stepping forth into a realm, a living, an enclosure, a world, a universe of unceasing prayer with him.